Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, August the 17th, 2023. Last week, I had a great conversation with uh, Rion Amilcar Scott on what we called literary insurrections, mimetic apocalypses. Those were his terms. Uh, he's the author of a very well-received collection of short stories, The World Doesn't Require You. And we talked about social media and particularly Black Twitter, his involvement with it, um, his uh, embrace of it and the future of Twitter or X or whatever uh, we want to call uh, the new uh, Musk social media platform. Another very distinguished writer who has been associated with Twitter is my guest today, Disha Filia. She is the author of a brilliant new book. It's actually not so new, uh, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. It's won all the awards. It's a fascinating collection of stories. Uh, and uh, I'm thrilled that she is joining us, uh, Disha, from uh, Houston, Texas. Disha, welcome. So, Thanks, Andrew. So congratulations on the book. We'll get to the book later. But you joined, uh, at least according to your Twitter or your X page, I don't know what we call it now, you joined in August 2009. Do you remember your first tweet, why you joined? I don't remember my first tweet, but I remember using Twitter to crowdsource my wedding shoes. <laughs> I remember, that was one of my early tweets. What does that mean, crowdsource your wedding? I, I wanted people to give me ideas and give me feedback on what shoes I should have for my wedding. I was getting married uh, for the second time. I have since gotten divorced, so I'm no longer married to that person. Um, but I remember that as one of my early tweets. It's like, hey, I'm, this is what I'm wearing. This is what my wedding dress looks like. What kind of shoes should I have? And all these strangers weighed in. Do you remember when the, the time or approximately when you first heard the term black Twitter, what it actually meant, what it should mean? If I'm not mistaken, for me, the moment that crystallized black Twitter was when um, the uh, there was a woman, Justine, I don't remember her last name, a white woman who said something really racist uh, as she was taking a flight to Africa. And by the time she landed, she had been fired. Um, yeah, that was an AIDS remark saying, uh, I yes. think she joked, it wasn't a very funny joke, uh, I've got AIDS. And then uh, she said, no, I'm only joking, I'm white. Yeah, yeah. Thank, I, I forgot the specifics, but that was a moment where I felt this sort of um, groundswell of Black folks on Twitter, you know, talking about the seriousness of her comment, but also joking. And then somebody contacted her employer and you know all of these things sort of happening in this collective of people who are all over the world all on our little devices but focused on this one moment and that's when i first felt like a part of black twitter the woman's life was i guess ruined um did you have any sympathy with her i mean clearly it was a, an incredibly dumb and yeah. um, offensive I things to say but as she I don't know claimed if she was the right word because there's been a where are they now all of these folks who you know allegedly have had their lives ruined 
you know, she's fine. Uh, it's not like she wasn't able to to get another job or or whatever. Um, but I am I grateful that you know there was no Twitter when I was her age and younger. Absolutely, because if all of us you know had the ability to broadcast the worst things we've ever said, you know, as as younger people, though she wasn't young, young, you know. Um, so yeah, so no, I'm not particularly sympathetic. I think she's perfectly fine. We had Disha. We had. Um... Christian Cooper on the show last mm -hmm. month, the Central Park bird watcher guy who also got involved in another Twitter or social media controversy. Mm -hmm. uh, news spreads fast on these platforms, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, Twitter is my primary news source. And so, you know, news breaks on Twitter, for me at least, before anywhere else. It used to be Facebook was a few days behind, but Facebook is also, you know, starting to kind of keep pace. I think with the changes at Twitter, now X, I see more people active and um, sharing news and breaking news and doing commentary on Facebook pre more now than previously. Um, but for a long time, you know, it was really Twitter. Do you... Do you bemoan the fact that we don't call it Twitter anymore? I still call it Twitter. <laughs> I bemoan everything that's happened over there. Um, but I, I, I'm very um, reluctant and recalcitrant in that I'm going to call it Twitter. I'm going to call these tweets and retweets. I'm not changing my language around it. But yeah, it is absolutely uh, unfortunate what happened. Dish, a lot of people have written about Black Twitter, Meredith Clark, someone else I think we're going to get on the show. Mm -hmm. um, she's written a dissertation on it. What for you does it mean? What, what is it? Is it? It is, for me, Black Twitter is, the, is, is a virtual um, representation of how, of the community I grew up in in the South. Uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, when I was growing up, where there was this sort of kinship and fellowship around with other Black folks, even though we're not, you know, all the same, we're not a monolith, but there were just certain things that we kind of rallied around, a certain way of, of approaching um, the slings and barbs that come our way, a certain um, joy, a certain uh, insistence on looking out for each other. And here it is in this sort of digital space where, um, you know, um, the, the fact that we'll make a joke out of almost anything and our humor is unparalleled. Um, you know, some of the funniest people I remember in my life were the people, the older people I grew up with. I grew up in a very intergenerational household. Um, and so Twitter is the closest approximation that I've had to that um, since I left Florida. When you joined in 2009, of mm -hmm. course, uh, Obama was um, president. Mm -hmm. How, when you think back and when you remember the America of 2009, what occurs to you between the politics of the time and the growth of Twitter and Black Twitter? My goodness, we, it was a more <laughs> innocent time. You know, some of us really thought that Obama was going to, um, you know, change the world. Um, I remember sitting on the couch um, and watching his inauguration on television and tweeting at the same time and crying um, for the moment, um, imagining if my mother and my grandmother you know, we're still alive and, you know, how they would be, feel, might be feeling in, in that moment. Um, 
And so I look back and think, gosh, I was so naive to think that, you know, one man and one presidency up against, you know, all of these systemic forces at play. Um, but I still cherish that memory. You know, that's what I mean. Like it's it's about community that like there are things that come along later that are, are awful, but we still have these memories of community and family and, and fellowship. And that's what I remember from that time. And then looking back kind of wistfully at, you know, um, you know, it, I don't like the whole the good old days sort of thing. It was because that was truly we just didn't know. It's not that, you know, things were, um, you know, the, the, there was this idyllic conditions. It was just we didn't know what was coming. We didn't know what was coming. Do you have a, a nostalgia for that innocence back in 2009? You know, I, I don't know if it's a nostalgia for the innocence, but it's definitely a nostalgia for um a nostalgia for a couple of things. One being, um, you know, there were always these forces at play, as I said, um, but we know with the election of Donald Trump, those forces were empowered and emboldened. So I definitely long for a time before that, um, but also a time before a lot of the conscious branding that was happening on Twitter and black Twitter, you know, hasn't been immune to that where people got on just to check in with the community, just to, you know, laugh and joke and lament and all of the things that we did. And it felt more organic and genuine. And then I was away from Twitter for a few years, came back around 2015, 2016 or so. And suddenly we have influencer culture and brands and that. And I think that shifted um, the culture of Twitter, of Black Twitter. Um, and I, I would, you know, I, heart, I, I long for a time before that when you could sort of see people tweeting and it felt very forced and it felt like I'm, I'm trying to go viral. Whereas, you know, people would go viral for being funny or poignant or um, on point for, you know, just effortlessly and just naturally and not for clout, uh, you know, as people say now. I was going to ask you the influencer question. Um, what is an influencer in your mind? And when you came back to Twitter in 2015, 16, mm -hmm. um, what were you hearing about this, this term influencer? What did it mean and how new was it? I felt like I had missed the wave, you know, that while I was kind of off of social media actively during for a few years, I came back and the influencers weren't just on Twitter or even primarily. I think a lot of it was Instagram and this was and then we, you know, and then TikTok, TikTok. And it's not that I'm averse to or, you know, think there's anything wrong with branding, because I also use Twitter to brand um, because I, I wrote a co-parenting book. Uh, that came out in 2013. And so I certainly use Twitter to, um, you know, to sell books and, and you know, push this idea of, you know, civil co-parenting after divorce. Um, but I, I, I always hope that I did it in a way that was genuine and, and sincere. It didn't, I, I don't think anything I did felt like what I was seeing where folks who I thought were just naturally funny and fun to be, you know, around on this, in this virtual space. It all felt very orchestrated and it was all very much about getting your follower counts up and, and everything felt very curated. Um, and I sort of missed the, the messiness of, of, you know, the times past. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with people being influencers. You know, I'm not mad at anyone, you know, who ethically is, you know, trying to, to get a bag. Um, but 
it to the extent that it takes away from the more sort of community feeling of people not just trying to sell you something or to um, you know to uh, to to monetize things um, to the extent that that's eroded some of the relational aspects of it. I do lament that, um, but I don't have a problem with you know people pursuing being an influencer um, as long as it's done you know ethically and, and respectfully. Do you think there's a generational quality, Disha, to the influencer economy or the idea of influencers that it seemed to seduce? Um, yeah. not the first generation of, or mm-hmm. even the second generation of social media users, but mm-hmm. younger people who thought that they could make a living through this. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the risk of, uh, of, you know, starting the generation wars for me, a, a lot of the, the gap is I see that they are, they have this facility with video and with, you know, being able to quickly make this content and quickly respond and react to things and this facility with the technology that um, I'm Gen X, you know, that even some of us as Gen Xers don't have. Um, And that is that new wave, that kind of third wave that you're speaking of, Um, because certainly there were, you know, um, I I sort of came of age on the internet in, uh, not came of age, that's not true, but my time on the internet um, at the peak of it, I think, was during the blogger uh, era, you know, the of where you went to individual sites before an Instagram and a TikTok and a lot of the mommy blogging culture and, and those sorts of things. And so it's there was a shift even from there that focused a lot more on video content, a lot less on text. Um, so a lot of us were writers and bloggers. And, you know, so we might have had blogs, but also books. Um, and so with, you know, influencer culture, it's around a lot more around lifestyle and a lot more around video content, a lot more just the volume of content is different. And so I think that generally, generationally, I don't know if it's that my generation can't keep up. It's just, at least for me, you know, it's not how I want to use my time. I would rather take my time to, you know, write a long form essay or, or, or something like that. Um, and so I see that world as not really for me. And even as I think as an author about books, like I know there's book talk and I'm like, you know, that's just not going to be <laughs> the place where, you know, where I'm going to be promoting my books. Now on book talk, there are others who are promoting my book, which I really uh, appreciate because it would take me like a week to make a video for TikTok and they can do it like in an hour. Um, so I, I absolutely respect that. So you came back um, to social media 2015, 16. I'm guessing there was a political element there oh, too. Sorry. I mean, you- Hang on, there's a, somebody coming to mow the grass. I am so sorry. It may be Elon Musk. It's hard to hear. Hang on, let's see, they're passing. So it should pass in a moment. Okay, I can hear you now. I was joking, Disha. It's oh. probably Elon Musk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, it's probably the Trump people because we're coming up to politics now. Well, you so know, you, I will say this is as critical as I have been. One thing I have not done is I've not been critical of Twitter on Twitter or critical of him on Twitter. Not out of fear, but it's like I just you know. I'm not trying to do anything to draw attention and get involved. And, you know, there's such a pettiness to how um, 
you know, this new owner has handled things. And I just have been more of an observer and a commentator elsewhere, but not on the platform itself. And I've tried all of the other platforms, by the way. I have accounts everywhere because I wanted to preserve my name. I still remain active um, primarily on Twitter versus any of the Twitter. Have any of the other ones resonated? TikTok, Instagram, Thread? Um, so I have been on Instagram and Facebook, um, and Twitter. Those are my core three. I have accounts at thread, blue sky, spoutable spill, you name it. I'm there. Um, but I signed on, you know, poked around a little bit and then I, those aren't places I check every day, the way I check Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, if not every day, almost every day. So you got on in about in the in the summer of 2009 august mm -hmm. so that makes it tw uh, i was gonna say 24 my math is not good uh, 14 <laughs> years ago yes. and then you came back 2015 2016 america mm -hmm. was of course a very different place from obama yeah. to trump did you return because of politics i'm trying to think what brought me back it might have been i i remember that during that time i was on facebook more arguing with people um, as the in the sort of lead up to the election. And um, I think the other thing that was happening around that time, I mentioned, you know, that I, I ended up getting divorced and that, you know, my relationship was ending. Um, and I know that at that time, I felt that sense of community again. And I think maybe subconsciously I was coming back for that sense of community and Twitter and Black Twitter in particular didn't disappoint. Um, I was also working on um, what would become the secret lives of church ladies. And so that's when I started to, um, you know, start to connect with more writers on Twitter um, more than I had been previously um, when I had been on, on Twitter previously. So there's literary Twitter or writer Twitter. There's, you know, and then there's subgenres even of that. Um, so, you know, connecting with other writers was, was, uh, was different. Um, and I wasn't doing the co-parenting stuff anymore. So I have two Twitter accounts, the one under my name and then the co-parenting 101 account. And so I just came back under my name. And um, so it's sort of like a, you know, a second act, I guess. Well, we're going to, this was our first act. We're talking with Disha Philia, the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, about her social media history. We're going to talk more about that. Also going to talk about her book. But for the moment, we're going to take a short break. Um, and we want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a very independent, defiantly independent, non-digital um, publication. I'm going to run a short ad, and then we'll be back with Disha to talk more about uh, social media in the Trump age, and of course, her wonderful book. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And then you can find it at libertiesjournal.com for anyone interested. So, um, Disha, we were talking before the break about 
your return to social media in 2015-16, the beginnings of an influence economy. How different was it? In, n- not so much in terms of the rise of influencers, but mm-hmm. in terms of the, the tenor, the kinds mm-hmm. of conversations that you were hearing in 2015-16 that you didn't hear in 2009? I think... I don't know if it was so much that the conversation changed than it was um, I, I I was less in a bubble. I think I in my early incarnation on Twitter, I definitely was in sort of a little bubble and did not, I mean, I didn't have as many followers and I wasn't following as many people. When I returned, I was following a lot more people. My, you know, I was, you know, touching other parts of Twitter um, than I had been previously. And I started to um, notice two things that were, you know, that started to happen. And, and certainly now they've kind of reached a fever pitch, which is the um, sort of racism and, and fascism that, you know, we see played out on Twitter. Um, but also uh, some silencing around um, anti-racist voices um, and sort of a, you know, these two very different kinds of um, movements or perspectives. And I had to kind of make a decision for myself, like how much time do I want to engage, you know, with either? And so after initially being a lot more engaged, um, sort of like I'm back and, it, you know, it's a bit of a frenzy, then I realized, oh, this is this could be a real time sink. And I really had to uh, think about, um, how much time I was devoting to social media um, and how it was influencing me overall, my mood and everything else. And what was my purpose there? Because it certainly had changed. It was not no longer just about, you know, being with my folks, being in community, being with Black Twitter. It was a lot broader. Um, this idea of the discourse of the day, how often do I want to get involved in that? Nowadays, rarely. Um, who's going to be the main character on Twitter today? You know, all of that. And so after initial time of, um, you know, getting involved in whatever the hot topics were for the day, I tend to I tended to back up a little bit and observe a lot more um, than I engaged. Um, I also noticed um, over time since the uh, 2016 when they in- introduced the quote tweet option. Um, I rarely quote tweet now except to, you know, say nice things and, and support other other writers um, or other folks, um, as opposed to quote tweeting to engage in debate. Um, I don't really like debating on Twitter anymore. That's a huge shift. Um, I used to do a lot of, um, I don't even know if I can and can can swear on here shit talking. Oh, absolutely. Okay, a lot of shit talking on Twitter, yeah. and uh, that caught up with me recently when I went to a, a, a writing uh, festival and was there with another writer um, who's quite prominent, and we connected right away. And I was like, "How do I tell her that years ago on Twitter I was talking shit about her?" Oh my god! Because <laughs> I think we're going to be friends, and I just felt like I needed to say. You know, there was this time when, you know, she was kind of the main character or someone she was adjacent to was the main character of the day on Twitter. And uh, a lot of us were kind of taking some shots at her. And it it reminded me of how different um, I use Twitter now. Like I wouldn't 
do that now. Um, and so I confessed and I apologized to her and she laughed and, and we, you know, we had a good conversation about it. You use this term main character of the day on Twitter. What does that mean? That means the person who has drawn everyone's attention and usually their ire for doing something either ridiculous or unconscionable, or, you know, they've, as we say, put their foot in their mouth um, on an, any given day. Since 2016, of course, you yourself, you may not have gone viral on Twitter, but you've gone viral more broadly in terms of the success of your book. Um, uh, and uh, there's an interesting piece um, in Slate, The Secret Life of Disha Filio. Of course, your, your book, your prize winning book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, has done extremely well. Um, in the Slate piece, you talk about the rejection of your book and the problems mm -hmm. in the publishing industry. How do you think that connects with social media? The, I guess the democratizing quality of, of a place like Twitter where anyone can join and anyone can say anything and mm -hmm. publishing where, for better or worse, um, the commanding heights are still controlled by a, a small group of literary folk. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I don't even know that it's those two things that, you know, social media culture, um, I think the main way it doesn't prepare writers for the reality of the publishing world is this idea of taking your time, the idea of revision, which are really big in publishing and writing in general. Um, and social media doesn't lend itself to that, you know? Um, there's no edit button on Twitter unless you pay for it now. Um, and so you put things out there and for better or worse, it's out there um, unless you delete it. Um, but also this idea that, you know, we don't necessarily sit with our thoughts. Or we don't have to. Um, we can just put them out there and people can react and it can go viral. And in all the endorphins and all of the, the rush of good feeling of, of um, having people agree with us or like what we said, whereas in publishing, it's years before you can get there. Um, if you ever get there, um, there's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of uh, this is fine, but. And so social media culture and pace does not prepare you for the pace of publishing, for um, being asked to revise, for being asked to reconsider, for being asked to um, uh, rewrite and rethink and all of that. Um, there's urgency in both worlds, um, but they manifest in, in different ways. Um, the um, the uh, what is the phrase we use? Instant gratification. Um, it's so easy to, you know, as you said earlier, it's not necessarily about generations. You know, um, I think a lot of us want the instant gratification um, and social media gives us that. Publishing does not give us instant gratification, not typically. Um, and so it can be really discouraging for po folks who want to make the transition from, you know, um, being an influencer or being popular on Twitter and then writing a book um, and understanding that it's a whole other beast. It's a whole other muscle. Um, if you uh, need a lot of strokes, <laughs> publishing is not going to give it to you for the most part, um, the way that social media does. Cultural pessimists, of course, say, and they've said this about every new wave of technology, that it undermines attention and seriousness. A lot of people believe that social media um, does away with reading and books. Mm -hmm. 
but it seems as if in some ways perhaps it creates an appetite for a more serious investigation. Do you think there's some truth to that? I think it it creates the appetite for those of us who are curious. Um, and it also creates a way of finding out. Like I, you know, if it wasn't for social media, I wouldn't know about most of the books. I mean, you go to the library, you go to the bookstore and you have to wander around. And, but, you know, on any given day, there are lists and there's somebody recommending books and so forth. And so um, we are all now aware of more books than we could ever read in, in our lifetime, lifetime. And that's thanks to social media. Um, I, you know, I don't know that I can speak to whether or not it shortened our attention spans. Um, it hasn't shortened mine. I love a juicy, long form essay. Absolutely. Now, what I do think happened um, in the early days of the pandemic is we were so traumatized and stressed out. I think our attention spans and ability to um to you know, read long form things were probably you know challenged and compromised, um, and so I know a lot of us were reading more flash fiction or flash nonfiction. Or I think that's one reason that short story collections got um, started to get the 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 uh, attention and the accolades. I think they've always deserved. Um, I don't think it's coincidental that that happened around 2020. Um, so I don't know if it's social media as much as it is. Um, you know, our reading habits were affected in the early days of the pandemic. That's what I've observed. And what about recent history? Of course, mm -hmm. uh, Black Lives Matter uh, blew up, uh, erupted, I guess is the right word, through social media, uh, through the murder of George Floyd. What, what do you remember about that in the role of social media in Black Lives Matter and in, and in, the, in the narrative around Floyd? I, you know, again, that was around, that was in the early months of the pandemic. Um, I believe he was killed in the spring of 2020, and we were just all, you know, kind of starting to go into lockdown. Um, I remember being very numb. Um, I remember being very exhausted. I remember feeling a loneliness that was beyond even the physical isolation we were going through and just, you know, the horror of it all. And then to see the way the world literally rallied and came outside in a time when we were all terrified to be out and about um, to, to decry, you know, what that, you know, that, this man was killed and how he was killed. And, um, and, you know, all in the back of our minds, of course, wasn't just the, the killing, but the fear and, or perhaps the awareness that this cop was going to get away with it again, as it always had been. Um, and so we're, you know, bearing the weight of all of that and the pandemic and, 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 um, and so for me, um, I remember, you know, like I couldn't tear myself away from social media. I felt like we were at a moment of collective grief and, this, and it was through social media that we um, were connected. Um, but going back a few years, uh, it was really Trayvon Martin's murder um, and, you know, the subsequent trial and all of that. Um, where I feel that Black Twitter, that was definitely a family gathering, a family grieving, a family lament about um, this child's death 
and then um, George Zimmerman getting away with it. Uh, that's and you know and th those you know the roots the Black Lives Matter you know grew from there. So um, so for me, social media and Black Lives Matter always sort of intersect in this place of collective grief for me and awareness. Yes. Um, but I, I kind of cringe a little bit as, you know, social media raised awareness. It's like, but for so many of us, this we were always aware, <laughs> you know? Um, and the question is now that more people are aware, is anything going to change? And when we, as we've now seen the erosion of efforts and commitment to justice and to change that happened since 2020, um, you know, it feeds my cynicism that awareness and raising awareness isn't, isn't enough. Do you remember where you were on January 6th, 2021 and how or why <laughs> social media played a role then? I, uh, I was living in Pittsburgh and I was off of social media that day. Uh, or in the early part of the day, uh, because I was I had a meeting um, with my agent, and so for hours, when the Capitol was being pillaged, I didn't know. I didn't know until after it had happened, and you know there were all of the videos and so forth. Completely um, unaware until after the fact. But yeah, I remember exactly where I was. And what would you, how would you respond to some people who would say, well, social, uh, January 6th was just some people demonstrating like Black Lives Matter was like some people demonstrating? <laughs> I always call bu bullshit on both sides. -ism. <laughs> yeah, that I would not. Um, I think that if someone, you know, I think that's a disingenuous comparison. Um and, you know, and I think even asking the question, you know, the breach of the Capitol of Nancy Pelosi's office, I mean, you know, there, there is no comparison. Absolutely not. Adisha, finally, uh, you've mentioned loneliness a couple of times. I think uh, psychologists have noted, researchers, that loneliness fell off the cliff in about 2012. People suddenly... A generation of Americans, particularly young Americans, became lonelier and lonelier. And of course, mm -hmm. we now have what many people refer to as the age of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Is it any coincidence that we seem increasingly lonely in an age of social media and social media is designed to allow us to connect with others? Unpack that one for me. It is baffling to me, but it is absolutely something that I have experienced firsthand and it drives how I engage with social media because I've observed it with myself. Um, I will go to social media sometimes if I am feeling lonely because I can you know, get that connection and that affirmation or that you know, if we're grieving something or laughing about something. And then I notice that there are times where after a certain while, then the, it, I feel lonelier than I did before. So it's like a diminishing returns. I think that's what we call it. Um, because it's there's no substitute for, as much as I have made great friends through social media, there is still no substitute for human touch, physical connection, you know, literally breaking bread with someone. Um, and so then there's a way that social media reminds you that it's not that, and it feeds the loneliness. And so... 
what I've had to do for myself is find that sweet spot before we hit diminishing returns. I don't know what that dynamic is, but I absolutely experience it. 